welcome to But First, People, a podcast brought to you by Pride Global. I'm your host, Kamala Forbes, the Global Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Pride Global. Along with my colleagues, on this podcast, we'll dive into everything from diversity, equity, and inclusion to service and staffing in the human capital industry, and so much more. Join us as we sit down with industry experts to hear their stories. Welcome to But First, People. On this episode, I'm excited to announce that we have the pleasure of having Dr. Judith Fiona Joseph. Dr. Judith is a board-certified psychiatrist and also a clinical assistant professor of child and adolescent psychiatry at NYU Langone Medical Center. She's also the chairwoman of the Women in Medicine Initiative for Columbia University Vigello's College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. J, as she's affectionately called, is an expert on various media platforms and has made national television appearances on many shows, including The Dr. Oz Show. She currently teaches medical media courses to physicians and medical students at Columbia and New York University. We're so excited to get started. So let's go ahead and talk to Dr. J. Let's start off by letting me tell you this. So here at Pride Global, we have a tradition and Anytime somebody starts at Pride Global, we have a Monday morning meeting, all hands meeting, everybody, our entire global team is on this call. Every new employee that starts their first day, they get to sing <laughs> in front of the entire uh, organization, you know, just about 30 seconds or so of a song. But I guess the goal behind that is really to let people not be afraid to whatever, make mistakes and just know that you, this is a family and we're here to support you, whether you sound great or, you know, you should keep your day job, whatever it is. We, you know, we just like people to kind of throw their inhibitions to the wind, dive in and know that we're, we're a whole team and family here to support. So I just thought in keeping with that tradition, it would be great to have all of my podcast guests sing a little song, you know, relax, loosen up a little bit because we're about to get real here. So um, with that said, what song are you going to sing for us today? So my daughter loves this song, uh, Cheek to Cheek by Frank Sinatra. And so I could start with that one. It also has a lot of kind of themes that go along the line of mental health and happiness. Oh, great. All right. Well, when you're ready, take it away. Heaven, I'm in heaven. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I seem to find the happiness I seek when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Wow, that's, <laughs> wait, how old is your daughter again? She's five. Five and no Frank Sinatra songs like that? She's a New Yorker. Well, what happened to baby shark to shark to shark or whatever? No, unfortunately... <laughs> She's high maintenance. So. <laughs> well, I love that song, and you did a great job singing it, so kudos to your daughter, Zara. <laughs> Thank you. All right, well, so let's dive in here. So we're sitting here with Dr. Judith Joseph today, and I want to know, what caused you to get into this line of work? And, like, what's your passion? What is your why for why you do what you do? You know, that's a great question because, like many people that I run into and that I meet in sessions and clients – I didn't start off on this path. Initially, I wanted to be the traditional doctor. I went to Columbia Medical School thinking I was going to be a neurosurgeon and did a lot of research. And And I found that being in the operating room in a cold, sterile, quiet environment under a sheet looking through a hole at someone's brain 
was just not that cool. (laughs) However, I do like the brain and I I really do find that human behavior is fascinating. And so, you know, psychiatry is a field that really called and spoke to me Um, and seeing people express pain in so many different ways is just fascinating. And I'm lucky in that people come to me and they share things with me and I hold their secrets and they trust me. And so it's really a job that I never get tired of. I'm excited going to work every day. So mental health is something we all have and we all need to take care of it. Oh, and talking about mental health, I mean, as we're recording this session now, the Omicron variant is kicking up and cases in New York are rising and I'm sure just across the country. And I guess that's the topic that's on everybody's mind. So let's start with that. Um, Every time the trends start, we, you know, we think we're getting a little bit better and then, you know, something else pops up um, and the cases start surging. So when you add to that the fact that most offices were starting at least to gear up to return to office and have some policy of sort, you know, whether that's a hybrid model, um, you have employees starting to experience coronavirus anxiety. Mm-hmm. So how do you see the impacts of COVID affecting the workplace? And what are some tips that you might suggest for managing this anxiety? You know, as a mental health expert, I really had to, and my colleagues and I, re- we really had to go to other countries and data from other you know, countries like in Asia, countries in Europe to get this expertise because unlike us, they've had many pandemics over the past several decades. And so the data coming out of those countries really shows that the majority of people experience you know, intense anxiety, irritability, this fear of the unknown, poor sleep and so forth, anger and rage. However, the majority of us will be okay. Most of us will be resilient enough to get through this. Now, there are some vulnerable populations, you know, people who are in healthcare, for example, elderly people, people with cognitive or developmental delays or disabilities. They tend to have challenges that the majority of us will not have. So we know that ultimately we'll be okay. However, it doesn't feel like that right now because of the economic uncertainty, the unknowns, the constant fluctuations of schools opening and closing. So, you know, we are human beings. We need to know what's going to happen. We have true fears and anxiety. So it's okay to feel this way. And I think the first step is really naming that feeling and validating it. Oh, I like that, naming the feeling. And what would you say to your patients about that? How, how, do, how do you recommend that you, you know, name the way you feel? I think it's so hard you know, to really kind of pinpoint sometimes to people how they're actually feeling. Yeah, a lot of my patients, especially the uh, people who identify as people of color, they'll say to me, I never thought that I would actually say I have anxiety or I feel depressed. And so there's a lot of power in knowing what you're feeling. Sometimes we tend to skirt around it. We'll say, I'm tired or I feel sick or I just need to rest. However, when you could put a name to what you're experiencing, then you could do something about it. It's not confusing, right? I mentioned earlier that human beings fear the unknown. And so not understanding what's happening in your body and your brain and your emotions, that in itself is anxiety provoking. So putting a name to how you're feeling is truly powerful. And it's really the first step. It's validating. And how how do you see or maybe recommend that happening in the workplace, right? It might be great if you're talking to a therapist, but what about just in the workplace? What kind of opportunities do you see for companies to be able to create opportunities for their employees to actually put a name to it so that they could start addressing it? You know, it's a culture of really valuing mental health and emotional well-being. 
And for some companies that I work with, they've actually incorporated it into their culture. So they may have certain uh, get-togethers, town hall meetings, where they actually prioritize mental wellness and setting appropriate boundaries in terms of workplace, work-life, home-life balance. And, you know, there's something that I call the five V's to thriving. And it's really like a way of living. So like the first is you know, validating how you're feeling. The second is venting, talking about it, having a space. And so companies that can create spaces for people to talk about these things and to just hold these emotions, I think they tend to do better in terms of their employee well-being. And then values. What do your employees value? You know, some people really like it when companies give back or they allow employees to really be a part of initiatives that help, you know, the greater good. So what are the values? Or, you know, it could be your family, you know, companies that allow time for family events or time for family leave. And then the fourth one is vitals. Like, are you sleeping enough? Are you getting movement? Some companies really incorporate, you know, exercise life, you know, classes, so forth, nutrition, ways to feed the brain. And then vision is the last V. You know, what are we looking forward to? What is the goal? Having that on a calendar, having events to look forward to. So I think that when you have a culture of having these key core components, you know, people are happier, you know, and they're they're more balanced and they bring that at home as well. So their families are happier with them. Ah, that's a lot of really good advice. Ooh, and free my listeners. <laughs> uh -huh. um, well, when I think about it, the, the reality is that COVID's here to stay. Um, we just have to get adjusted to this new normal. And so what suggestions do you have for coping with this new norm? It is a new norm. And I think that, you know, a part of disaster psychiatry, you know, because a pandemic is a disaster and disaster mental health is preparedness. You know, for a lot of people, not knowing what is happening next is really part of the worst part of this whole thing. So I think that having a disaster plan or having an emotional plan, right, uh, is helpful. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how many variants there'll be. If we have a plan to address it and to prevent, you know, crises, then I think that people feel more safe and secure. You know, it's it's similar to the retirement fund, right? Like you're putting money in there. You're not sure what's going to happen in the future or when you're, you're going to need it. But having it there is, you know, gives you that sense of security. Yeah, well, that's a great analogy. Think about just in addition to employees having to deal with the stresses of COVID, there's the regular job burnout stress that can affect one's physical and mental health. So what would you say are some of the symptoms that our listeners should look out for? And what are some of the things one might do to avoid burnout and set realistic expectations for 2022 and beyond? Yeah, you know, I think that burnout is something that's easy to fall into, especially when a world is so chaotic and Sometimes people just bury themselves at work because it's something that they feel like they can control. So burnout isn't necessarily something that comes from the employer, right? Sometimes we take it on ourselves to work too hard because it's something that we have within our power. And so I think that really allowing time in the day to sit and reflect, it doesn't have to be going to a fancy doctor's appointment. It can be something simple as taking five minutes in the morning to just do some deep breathing to really turn everything off and to do some insightful digging into who you are and giving you that space just to reflect allows you to just feel more centered. You know, something that is also free since you like free <laughs> is, you know, sipping water. I see that you have your, your thermos here with your name on it, right? Yes. Drinking water is self-care and people don't think about this. But, you know, in our research, we know that anxiety leads to dry mouth. 
It leads to people not eating as much. And so something as simple as saying, I'm gonna drink water throughout the day and take sips of this thermos until it's done, that's self-care. Putting things in the workplace that have life. You know, a lot of times, especially in New York City, we don't have plants at the desk. There are plants that don't require a lot of sunlight. And research shows us that looking at something that's living in our workplace or workspace or work environment inspires us. It also cleans the air. So it's something, again, it's simple and it's self-care. So there are little things that you can do to augment your day just to increase your points of joy. And study shows us that when you increase points of joy throughout the day, it really does improve your overall well-being. Wow. Those are some great little pointers. Yes, I, I didn't even know that I, I was doing that. I did make that a goal to finish two thermoses of water per day. So um, little did I know those were little points of joy. So I'm well on my way, at least. <laughs> um, well, you talk about um, work-life balance, and that's probably a little more elusive now, especially in these work-from-home times. How important would you say that work-life balance is around creating boundaries to protect your mental health? I think that technology is great. It's given people access to resources they otherwise would not have had. It allows us to work from home so that we're around our loved ones more often. At the same time, too much access can sometimes be detrimental. And so I like to you know, suggest to my clients that they take a digital diet. And really, you're balancing the time that you have online with the time that you have offline with your family, with your uh, loved ones, you may just, you know, put all the devices in a bin and, you know, make it part of the culture or the home life culture that you're just not going to look at devices. You're just going to put everything away, laptop, phones, work phone, you know, pager if you're a doctor. And you're really going to give yourself that space to have real life interactions because part of our fatigue is being online and being too connected, you know, to digital media. And so there, again, a little life hack that you can do to improve your overall well-being, that's free. Overall well-being. Well, I also have recently heard something about workplace PTSD. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit to that? And is that kind of tied into what we've been talking about so far? Or is that a totally different subject altogether? You know, there are many types of trauma. And with workplace PTSD, it's kind of a controversial term because the traditional trauma that people think about tends to do with attacks or assaults or combat. However, you know, if you think about it, if something is life-threatening, it's traumatizing. And for many of us, having our livelihoods threatened is a trauma. And so if, we, if you've ever been in a, in a hostile or toxic work environment, you know that, you know, wondering if you're going to get fired or wondering if you're going to get that bonus, you know, that can keep you up at night. And so people can experience some of the uh, symptoms of PTSD or trauma from workplace uh, experiences. And, you know, this is not just like things like sexual harassment or people being biased towards you. It could be something like a pandemic threatening your livelihood. So people can experience, you know, forms of trauma and trauma reactions when they think that they are not going to have a job or an income. Oh, and you think about that. Um Sometimes you have you think about adding another layer of complexity to workplace stress and mental health for people of color who also have to cope with discrimination and have the added burden of an emotional tax, so to speak. Um, the emotional tax is typically defined as the heightened experience of being treated differently from peers due to race or ethnicity or gender. 
which triggers adverse effects on health and feelings of isolation, making it difficult to thrive at work. Actually, I saw the other day a Catalyst um, survey, a survey by Catalyst, that revealed that nearly 60% of people of color have experienced this burden at work. Can you speak a little on this and some wellness tips you would recommend for people of color? You know, I think that people don't realize that when you are, when you look a certain way or you look different, that you're automatically judged, right? There are, there are these misconceptions about you. There are these assumptions. And it may not be overt uh, discrimination. However, you know, it's an aggression that is very little. It's tiny. And it adds up over time. And it's actually called a microaggression, right? So people who experience, you know, these microaggressions on a daily basis, they have more stress. They have more tension. Their body hurts more. Their mind hurts more, you know? And so I think that validating this experience is really important in terms of what employers can do because naming it, you know, is part of the solution. And I think that a lot of people unknowingly don't validate it, right? They don't understand that it's happening because it's not happening to them. And so the first step is acknowledging that this is happening. And I think that for people who, you know, are people of color who are experiencing it, again, a lot of times we want to invalidate our own experiences. Oh, perhaps it's for this reason I'm being, this was said to me or I'm being treated this way, right? So you have to acknowledge it for yourself. And again, we talked about those little things that you can do for self-care, you know, a part of that is, you know, dressing the way that you want to, expressing your culture through your hair, through your, you know, your jewelry, and really, you know, taking control of your image. And I think that that has been very powerful for a lot of people, because it's something that is subtle, it's passive, they don't have to do anything, they don't have to say anything, they're just being themselves. Oh, and then, how would you say, you know, it's one thing to identify it for yourself, but how about speaking up for yourself or being able to address somebody that is the microaggressor? I think that a part of this problem is education. And so for many of us, we feel that, you know, we'll be seen as angry or aggressive if we say what's happening. And I think that people are willing now to listen. I think talking about it is empowering, not just for the person experiencing it, but for the people in the environment. I think people want to learn. I think people want to improve. They want to get better. You know, a lot of the New York Times bestsellers last year were about racism, how to be an anti-racist, right? And so I think that we're at a very unique time in our society where people want to know more about this. So I think that we have to speak up as well and educate others. Yeah, I totally agree. The time is now. And you could see that pendulum shift that's happening right now, people being more focused on it. So I think it's a great opportunity to take advantage of that and help to educate. But with all of the pressures that one can experience in the workplace, how important would you say it is for leaders to create psychological safety in the workplace? And what are some ways that you think they can do that? Education is key. And I think it's difficult when you have workforces that are, you know, thousands in the, in the thousands and the hundreds. And so you really have to, you know, put out content and education that is mandatory. Trainings are really important depending on the industry that you're in, you have to do certain trainings to check boxes. In this case, you know, psychological safety is so valuable. A couple of years ago, corporations were really focusing on physical health. They were giving incentives to employees to exercise, to, you know, go to their doctors to get their annuals. And the data really showed that that did not pay off in the end in terms of productivity and efficiency. 
And when, you know, the pendulum shift towards mental health care and focusing on emotional well-being, that actually shows increased productivity, decreased burnout. So I think there's a real incentive for companies to offer a mental health benefits, education, and also space just for mindfulness for wellness. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to go to a doctor, right? right? Having a corporation or, or a culture where, you know, mindfulness and meditation and self-care are really a part of the culture improves well-being and also improves productivity and efficiency. So I think that people are starting to realize that this really pays off. Yeah. And, you know, obviously everybody's always looking like, what's the ROI? So mm -hmm. you actually could start to see that. Well, recently there has been a rise in mental health issues in youth. And the Surgeon General even announced this is a mental health crisis, especially for black female teens. Can you give our listeners who might be parents or who have young adults in their lives some advice on how to address this? I think that the reason that we're seeing this in particularly black females is that you have to realize that the part of the essential workforce that got hit the hardest were you know, black single mothers, right? And, you know, black single mothers have children who are black, right? So these children are not just students. They're not just siblings. They become the babysitter. They become the second mom. Sometimes they're working a job, you know? So it's wonderful that people are talking about mental health and, you know, people are you know, talking about it in a way that's not stigmatizing. At the same time, some of the people that need this health care the most aren't getting it because, Who's going to pay for their doctor appointment? Who's going to allow them to leave their their job or leave their sibling or their babysitting, right? Their duties at home, uh, you know, for them to go and get this doctor appointment or to get this treatment. And so a lot of the focus nowadays is on the educational system, putting the mental health care in the schools, training the teachers, the counselors who are already overwhelmed to you know, really provide the mental health care because the students who really need the most, they don't have the time, they don't have the resources. And so you know, a lot of the focus is on the schools and supporting these schools. And one of the organizations that I work with, it's Charity Health Corps, they actually put um, you know, volunteers into the institutions, the uh, schools, to provide wellness tips and mental health care tips because the schools are overwhelmed and these students need it the most. That's uh, great information. It's so powerful. I just kind of got the chills um, listening to you and, you know, just kind of empathy of understanding what that, you know, what that burden is. Um, well, Judith, you've made over 100 media appearances and written numerous of articles and recorded many podcasts like this, you know, given a lot of information to um, listeners, uh, educating physicians and medical students and the public. But what ultimately do you want your legacy to be? You know, I think that when you have a platform and you bring about awareness about something that is used to be so taboo, um, you reach a lot of people. So I, I started off telling you that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeries are about like 10 to 18 hours long, right? And you're working on one brain. When you're talking about mental health and issues surrounding mental health and tips and challenges and so forth, you're speaking to potentially millions of people. So you're changing potentially millions of brains, right? And so I think that for me is truly, you know, inspiring and motivating. And I told you I'm excited to go to work every day. Yeah. And that's why. Oh, yeah. Millions of brains and millions of lives. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Well, you're doing a great job. You're still here, but you are writing your legacy as we speak. So I would say thank you for joining us today, for all of the advice that you've given our listeners. 
See, I mean, it's it's free advice that we didn't even have to have a full session with Judith, <laughs> Dr. Judith to, to take advantage of. So thank you again for your time and all of your expertise. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Dr. J, thank you so much for joining us on But First People. I'm positive your insights will help inspire our listeners. If any of you have any questions for Dr. Judith or myself, please feel free to tweet us at Pride Global with the hashtag but first people. Or you can email us at butfirstpeople at prideglobal.com. Of course, don't forget to like, share, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. Have a wonderful day and see you next time on But First People. <laughs>